Welcome back to another very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is my friend Brad Van Leeuwen, co-founder and COO of Cladara. Cladara is an all-in-one SaaS purchasing and management platform. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into Brad's background, which is absolutely fascinating. We dive into Cladara's mind-boggling growth as of late and their imminent expansion into the U.S. As I said, Brad is a friend and he's also a genuinely good human in the world of fintech. I hope you enjoy our conversation starting now. So, Bradley Van Leeuwen, I have missed you, sir. Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. How are you? Fabulous. All set for 2021. Yeah, I'm at this point more excited for 2022, but you know, 2021 is what it is so far. Oh we're we're, yeah. we're going to keep going. <laughs> I'm trying to be positive. What could I say? Hey, you know, you're 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 a founder. You got to be an optimist. I'm uh, not a founder at this point, so I get to kvetch and, you know, I can complain on both of our behalf. So anyways, we won't go down the political rabbit hole, but let's start with uh, let's start with a love story. Let's start with how you and I met actually back in Kansas City. What what was the situation? So you were at Rails Bank at that point, And I think you were just coming to NBKC to see if there was kind of a there there. We were talking about potentially partnering. And I ended up driving you to the airport. Like that's the extent of my memory of kind of how, how we obviously there's, you know, a love affair since then we talk regularly, but isn't that the first time we met? More or less. And you didn't just drive me to the airport. You basically saved my life because for some reason I found a moment in time where there was no Uber that would take me to the airport. And I hit that tipping point where I'd had so many Ubers cancel on me that unless uh, you save me, I, I wasn't going to make it. I remember now. Yeah, we were sitting in the lobby and you were like, you had Lyft and Uber open simultaneously and just sweat dripping from the brow, unsure if you were going to make it out of the U.S. in time. <sighs> Good times. All right. So that's how we met. So the, the listeners at least have a sense of, you know, our, our continued love affair. But let's go even previous to that, because one of my favorite parts about you and we'll get to Cladara and all the cool shit you're doing right now eventually but it's just like the Brad story from the beginning. You're just like this multinational, like Dos Equis man of fintech. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me where you're from. Tell me, you know, kind of the Brad career trajectory. Let's start there. Right. So um, I'm, I'm getting old now. So this story, I'll keep it short. But uh, so I'm from Australia originally from Perth, which is a, a small city on the West Coast, not very close to anything. So we're like five hours from Singapore, five hours from Sydney. And um, actually, it was there where kind of my journey in, in tech started. So in high school, I had a buddy who was a year older and we used to, you know, he used to um, get together with, with a few of his friends in one of the physics labs. This is late 90s on like a Friday night and order pizza, drink beer. I wasn't old enough to um, to buy it, but they, they were. So that was grand and play video games against each other, like 10 of us in a, in a room. And the physics lab was important because back then networking equipment was super expensive and we used to play Quake or StarCraft or whatever. And that ended up becoming a little bit more popular, right? More and more people wanted to come. And, you know, at some point I, I said, well, you know, why don't we try to do something around this? And we ended up renting a hall at the university and over the next few years, renting out a sports stadium and going on to build what was, you can imagine 5,000 people 
in a sports stadium, carrying their old, you know, big CRT monitors and tower boxes, sitting there for 36 hours playing tournaments uh, of Quake and StarCraft. We, I, you've yeah. never told me this story. I did I've not, never told this, you this story. You've never told me this story. No, I did not know you were the founder of esports. What? Well, no, <laughs> we're the founder of esports, but esports, but we, you know, this event I mean, did go of. on. <laughs> what, what year? What year was this? I imagine that people weren't sitting in uh, sitting in stadiums watching World of Warcraft at this point. It sounds like you were an early uh, early adopter. Yeah, this was like ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, and we. Yeah, I mean, you kind yeah. of founded esports, man. Kind of no. did. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna make a bold claim. Say you founded esports. It was a lot of fun. Like we had a lot of engineering challenges to solve. We um, we ended up being the second largest uh, LAN event. And a gaming event in the world at the time. Um, we had to do things like you've got 5,000 people in a room for 36 hours. You have to feed them. So we we built what I think is, well, was certainly Australia's first online ordering system for pizza in the world. We had to go put computers in nearby Domino's stores and Pizza Hut stores. And they people could log into an intranet page and say, look, they want the, the Hawaiian pizza thick crust from Domino's or whatever and give us five bucks. And the order would be routed to a nearby store. It was a lot of fun. How did the power grid handle all this shit? It sounds like you have like a whole bunch of PCs and like it's, it, it sounds like almost like a blockchain mining situation where the whole, like you would just have a brownout through the entire place if you weren't careful. Man, you've got no idea. Actually, we had whole like electrical engineering teams figuring out how to build temporary power distribution because these old how computers- How have you never told me this? This is crazy. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a fun chapter. So we- um, you know, we we had we had like the local FM radio station do their top forty countdown live simulcast from our event. We had Microsoft and Samsung sponsoring. It was a yeah, a lot of fun. It's a very Y two K kind of uh, conversation. It's like yeah, we had we had Samsung sponsoring. It's like Apple didn't wasn't quite there yet. No, no, no. But this would have been like you you were born by this point, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was. Yes, I was. You said it was 99. So I would have been, I would have been eight years old. There you go. Yeah. So I was not doing anything with networking at that point, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was, (laughs) I was playing basketball and somewhere probably, I probably wasn't supposed to be. So, you know, we did this for a few years, then broadband came along and rather than carrying your computer, it was much more convenient to play, you know, computer games from your bedroom. And I thought, well, I'd finished um, university. I'd take spent a couple of years as a graduate in, a, in Australia and moved to London, uh, 2008. And uh, well- Perfect timing to move to a financial center. Man, I so I, I landed in June 2008 and I thought, well, uh, you know, I've had these interviews lined up, but it's Europe, right? It's time to take a long summer holiday. So I, I asked everyone to delay my interviews till September. I jumped on a plane, went to Portugal. And well, of course, you know, September 15th, we all remember what happened. And uh, I luckily, the only guys that didn't cancel an interview was a, a, a development bank called uh, EBRD. And they'd lost their whole insurance team. My graduate job was to uh, kind of do consulting with insurance companies and audit to insurance companies. And so I was like the only guy they could hire that knew something about their, you know, multi-billion dollar insurance portfolio in, in you know, emerging markets. 
And so I spent a few years there. I uh, did some interesting investments along the way. I was the first investor in um, in what was the first online insurance company in Russia. We did like a big data-driven debt collection business in Turkey that's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, actually, that we acquired from the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy as a shell. So talk talk more about that, because this is one of my favorite parts of your story is like there's there's like five different countries and like debt facilities from 14 different places. And it's just like a very multivariate kind of thing. So like, how, how did that all come together and how, one of the questions that I've had through this whole process and like through knowing you is how in the fuck did you learn all of this? Like your depth of knowledge around specifically the debt side of all this is so deep. And I like, I know you went to school and whatnot, but I'm guessing you didn't learn it in school. So I have to credit EBRD, right? So we, you know, they had to rebuild a whole team that had, you know, investment targets to meet. And actually their target was how much money can you push out the door every year? So there was no, it wasn't so much about return. It was about new deals that you had to do. And people needed to get stuff done. People need to look after the portfolio. And um, I had a um, an acting director in the team at the time, Mike Hesketh, who's sadly no longer with us. But he, he was like, look, Brad, just go go figure it out. And he gave me a really long leash to make a few mistakes and, and learn things along the way. And really, I think people are capable a lot of a lot when they're, when they're given that opportunity. And it was, it was a lot of fun, right? Like everywhere from, you know, pretending to speak Russian with the, you know, Azeri finance minister one time in, in, in Baku there. And how do you pretend to speak Russian? Like that's, that doesn't seem like an easy, like I, I have a lot of, I, I have French blood or in French family, not French blood, I guess. And every one of my friends can do their own, you know, like, like French impression and seem at least like somewhat like a French asshole. But how do you, how do you, how do you try to speak Russian? That seems harder. Well, we had a, uh, an office there and we had a guy that could speak Russian. And basically I was told that this guy gets grumpy if people come in and can't, you know, they, they speak just English, right? You should speak a yeah. theory or, or, or Russian. And so I was told to basically just nod when everyone else nods and smile when everyone else smiles and laugh when everyone else laughs. And when I walked in, I, you know, it's, that's about it. Right. And you just kind of mumbled it because even that was kind of a struggle. Yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, but no, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think I think it was clear I didn't speak Russian, but I didn't cause any kind of geopolitical incidents. So that well, was, that's that was good. Okay too. That's good. That's good. Were you giving given any vodka in the midst of the meeting, or am I am I not am I not accurate in my hopes that there's vodka in every Russian meeting? Uh, you know, there's never been. I've never had vodka in a Russian meeting. That I did have quite a lot of um, in Ukraine, but that's. Uh, that's maybe a separate podcast. A separate podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Okay, so um, where were we? We were going through your experience of like how you learned all this. Yeah, so I think it's really learning by doing and trying to reduce things to to first principles. I remember one time where so. Uh, most of the investments I did at EBRD were kind of fintech or at least financial services online. But there was one um, with a, a bank in Turkey called Sheka Bank. And there'd been this law for covered bonds on the books in Turkey for like four or five years, but no one had ever issued a covered bond. And Sheka Bank had an interesting portfolio. A covered bond could help them. They were kind of willing to test this law and get a new source of capital. And I, I have to stop you. And I'm guessing that like 75% of the folks listening don't know what a covered bond is. Will you define a covered bond? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I define a covered bond. I should have studied for this test. So, <laughs> hey, you're, t- you're telling the story. You can butcher it if you want, but it's your story. So go with it. <laughs> so covered bonds, it's like a really old uh, financing in- instrument that came out of the 1800s in, in Germany. And basically it's like a securitization uh, in that the you issue against a pool of assets, so loans and traditionally with covered bonds, it's, it's mortgages. Um, but it's actually also dual recourse. So you don't just have uh, the the holders of the security don't just have recourse to the pool of assets, but also to the balance sheet of the the issuer. Ah, okay. Makes sense. So it sounds, it's like, it's almost, <laughs> other than the being a safe instrument part, it sounds like flavors of a mortgage-backed security, almost kind of a thing. I guess it is, um, though they're typically not um, sliced and diced like mortgage-backed securities are, right? Okay. So it's not, yeah. you, there are there, there are different layers, obviously, with different ratings, but it's 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 a very old traditional instrument. The buyers of it are quite conservative, and and so they're fairly well well established. Okay, so it's the opposite of mortgage backed securities, but it just kind of sounds like it in some ways. I don't think one's ever. <laughs> I don't think a proper cover a rated cover bond has ever defaulted. Or the, wow. the rather, or rather, I don't. I think to be more correct, I don't think that the the holders of the security have ever failed to receive their principal. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Continue on. We're officially getting into ground where I know no smart questions to ask. (laughs) So basically, this is a good example, right? So we had a a crazy bank, like the 14th largest bank in Turkey that wanted to try this thing. We had an untested law and we had a guy doing the deal that didn't know or barely knew how to spell covered bonds, right? Um, Was that you? No, that was that was very much me. And, you know, you, we were trying to deploy some capital into it alongside Deutsche Bank, I think, and some, some others. So the first thing you have to do is model it. Well, how the, I, I don't know how to model something that sophisticated, but, you know, you sit down, you try to understand how the, the pool of assets work and you, you do your best job and you're either right or you're wrong that you, you know, you, you take a shot on goal, right? And and along the way, people might say, you know, you show it to, to people who know more than you and... You, you learn, but you, you have a go. And, and really, I think that's been my philosophy across all things. Like, okay, there's a lot of things in life you don't know, but the only way to learn them is to have a shot. Yep. What did you study in school? <laughs> that's um, so I, out of school, I didn't know what I wanted to do or what I wanted to study. So in Australia, the way it works, you get like leaving exam marks and um, every. Uh, university and every course in that university has an entrance requirement based on those leaving marks. They're published. And so basically I picked the one that traditionally had the second highest score. I failed the psychological test for the med- for medicine. Uh, so I picked like a science engineering double degree, ended up studying maths and physics for a couple of years. Wasn't so into the civil engineering part of it. Gotcha. Okay. So nothing that has anything to do necessarily with what you ended up getting into. Well, I didn't end up graduating from that. So I spent a couple of years, didn't want to be a maths or physics teacher because I'd kind of gone too far down that path and ended up um, studying like accounting and, and finance just because it was I was good with numbers and it was the, the easiest path to a, a quick undergraduate degree. Gotcha. This is aligning more now. Yeah. In the US, that's just called a communications degree. But yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in that, in that process, because of that mental model that you just kind of outlaid, are there any stories from that, that were just kind of 
I don't know, for lack of a better term, like epic fuck ups, like were there, were there experiences that went south that you had to kind of pull back north? Huh? I mean, of course there are a lot of learnings. I wouldn't say there were epic, really epic failures, right? But, you know, there were things that didn't go as planned. There were things that took much longer to be, to be right than we thought we were. There were things that were way complicated than they were to, than when we got started. So I mentioned that Russian online insurance company. It's now the largest pure Russian online insurance company does motor insurance. But gee, we lo- the company lost a lot of money before the market was ready. So it was like the right thing. You were about six or seven years too early. Um, you know, uh, when we met, right, that's another good example. So I was like the one man project team for a small startup at the time in London called RailsBank. And my mission was to go get RailsBank launched in the US and we needed a, a, a bank to do that. So, you know, yourself and Eric at MBKC, great reputation, had a chat. And, you know, we did, I didn't know what we didn't know. What all, we didn't know how complicated it was. We didn't even know what language to use talking to um, American banks because whilst financial services is more or less the same, kind of a lot of what's important in Europe is not important in the US and and vice versa. So trying like to figure what? out like- Like well, expand on that. Well, you have- I mean, three. interchange is one thing that is, seems yeah. very different. Well, in consumer for sure, but also, you know, things like what's important from a compliance perspective. Right. What, what you've, you've got a concept of FBO accounts in the States. We don't have them over here. And that has different implications for what kind of diligence is required on, on customers as you, as you onboard them. Um, you know, so you care way more about SOC 2 than any European bank for starters, right? You end up down a massive cybersecurity rabbit hole. You end up down think, down these paths of thinking about, well, what can you do with customer money? In, in the US, when there was a yield curve, right, you can give money to Stonecastle and earn a return. Over here by regulation, unless you've got a banking license, you can't do that, right? You have to like ring fence the money and, and safeguard it. So there's all these things where you, you don't know what you don't know. And that project ended up taking way longer than I wanted. We ended up doing a deal with Cross River Bank um, at the time, but <laughs> there was a lot, of, a, a lot of pain along the way to figure out how to get that done. How, so what, was there a... Was there something between kind of the stories we were just telling and you getting to RailsBank or did we, did we skip a step or was RailsBank next? So we did skip a step. So I'd been, I'd spent, gosh, maybe eight years at EBRD and I'd been sitting on boards of companies telling, you know, founders and CEOs what to do and realized that actually I was probably talking rubbish. Like I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what was important. And so I wanted to go learn. And so along the way I, um, I met a company or actually it was a pre-product company at the time called Dupay, which was building a emerging market neobank based out of London for the Middle East. And I'd invested in it personally. They'd gone through Techstars. And so I joined because I I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to learn what was important and how to build a company and spent a couple of years there. We grew that to 140 odd people in a couple of years. It's still going. Uber uses it to pay their drivers in Egypt, McDonald's as well. Um, but whilst I was there, I spent a year living in Cairo along the way as well. Um, I realized that launching financial products was too hard and a 
buddy, uh, Nigel Verdon, had previously started a company called Currency Cloud, was thinking about kind of a broader technology solution for more than just foreign currency. And he'd started a company called RailsBank, which was making it easier to launch financial services. And so uh, joined him, I think I was employee number seven there. And to do really that, like to help expand the countries RailsBank operated in, also ended up running marketing. I'm not really sure why. Uh, but because I guess someone had to and, and helping out with sales too. So yeah, it's a startup and you had two hands and a brain. So here you go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's, that's how I ended up at rails bank to try to make it easier for, for companies to, to launch financial products. And uh, because I believe that, you know, lack of competition in financial services and kind of one, the incentives for big banks uh, was to make like one size fits no one financial products, right? <laughs> yeah, like, that's biggest addressable market. Pro- yeah, the biggest addressable market possible. And uh, because of their cost structure, because of their approach to risk, because of their, uh, their, their information systems. And I thought, well, actually, if you could reduce the the fixed costs and even reduce the operational costs of launching fun- and running financial products, you could make better products that were more niche and actually helped people and, and businesses achieve what they needed to achieve. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, you know, the the VC fintech karate are just calling that embedded finance now, right? Uh, man, we didn't even know what, we didn't even know to call it banking as a service. At right. the time, we 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 uh, we were calling it open banking because there was a regulation and people were using the word open banking in in Europe. But actually, open banking had nothing to do with what we were doing. It was just great for search traffic. And it that's that seems to have continued. It doesn't seem like the the world has actually come up with a definition of open banking that is uh, you know universal and continuous and helpful. So it sounds like we're still going down that path. One question that I've always had for you and that we haven't actually gotten to hang out since the whole COVID thing hit in what, so if, if, if it's a, if it's kind of a scale where on one side of the scale, it's, you know, I, to stand up a financial product, I have to cut off a left finger and all of my hair goes gray. And on the other side, it's, you know, pretty easy. Where, where in the world was easiest, where in the world was hardest? Cause I mean, you're, you've built things in Egypt, you've built things in the UK, you you've built things in the U S you've, you've seen geographies that I think a lot of people in this industry haven't. So what, what, maybe let's start with what was the worst. So, I mean, Egypt was tough, right? Like there was no regulation for what we were doing. And so we had a letter from the central bank governor. We kept very safe in a drawer that said that we could more or less do what we wanted to do. And it was literally a a piece of paper. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, And, and, uh, you know, we were... Um, we were building on top of a, a system where we like a, a partner bank's core banking system. They like the lowest bidder in Egypt built back in like 1994 or something. And a, a card processor that um, was also similarly reliable. So the tech stack we had to build on that. Oh, and we had to keep data resident in Egypt so that we, we couldn't even use like a CRM. We had to build everything. Um, that was really tough. And not only that, but from time to time, the government shut down the internet. So card authorizations wouldn't work. Apps, you know, apps showing balances wouldn't work. It was really hard to deliver a consistent experience. So that's why you were living in Egypt then is because you had like on-prem servers and you had to go and like, this was, this sounds like a very, like there were, there was a physical necessity to be there so that shit didn't go totally wild. 
Uh, I think it was more about just being closer to the customer. So we had okay. like a, a lot of the senior folks in the company, like the founder and the head of product and the CTO were all, all London-based. Um, but we had all our customers over there. So I wanted to talk to them. I can't speak Arabic, but some could speak English. I wanted to see how our operation ran. I wanted to be you know, closer to the partner bank. I want to be closer to the market. And so that meant yeah, living, living in Cairo for a year. Yep. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that sounds like a thread of your whole life is staying close to the customer. And we will get to Cladara eventually because I have specific questions about that. But kind of taking that thread forward, a lot of what you just described about Egypt honestly sounds like the U.S. system where you need a partner bank, you need a, you know, you need a, an issuer, you need a lot of these same things. Is the tech just, is the technology better here? Is the way of going about getting the contracts done like what why is you why is the u.s not the worst because that sounds very similar well at least in the u.s there are companies that are thinking about making it easier right there's you know there's bond there's synapse rails banks there now green dot can help you out if you're big enough um so there are there are companies that are trying to reduce that challenge i think Pre-Brexit, I would say that Europe, it was the best, right? You had, um, you could go get licensed by, you actually get your own license as a fintech company, which was like, it's called an e-money license. You can do everything a bank can do more or less, except pay interest, charge interest, or do anything with your customer money. So you can't do reserving. It just has to sit ring fenced. But with that license, you could get direct access to payment systems um, if you were far enough ahead in the queue, which means you didn't even need a bank to work with you. Right. And then you could passport across all of Europe and cover and all of the European economic area, actually, and serve 28 countries with that one license. Um, it was really fabulous. Now, it's getting more complicated now because you can't passport across Europe from the UK anymore um, because of Brexit. You've got countries like Germany that are now saying, well, actually, you know, because of maybe Wirecard, you've got to uh, we don't want people passporting into Germany. That sounds risky. You should have a like some kind of operation here that we can regulate you. So the market's becoming more fragmented. It's not getting easier. It's getting harder. But I think it still is easier over here than over there. Yeah, there there was that 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 point in time, that golden age that makes a lot of sense as to why Monzo and Revolut could grow as fast as they could uh, and get started as fast as they could based on that structure and and run and run and run. What what do you think happens now that Brexit is actually a thing? Like, do you, obviously, you just said it gets harder, but do you think companies like N26, granted, they're German, but these companies, you know, let's not pick one just so that we can actually speak, you know, openly about it and not shit on someone. Um, what do you think happens? Like, do you think it gets easier? Do you think their only hope is moving to the U.S.? What do you what direction are you thinking these things are going? Well, you've got an interesting situation. So on one hand, you have the biggest addressable market in Europe. On the other hand, you have the greatest supply of capital in the UK, right? The greatest supply of venture capital in Europe is in the United Kingdom. And so, um, and but at the same time, it's, it's more than twice as hard for an early stage uh, UK-based fintech company to operate across, uh, across that larger addressable market. So you've got now the pool of capital able to access not, you know, 450 million people, but like 65 million people that frankly aren't going to be in a very good economic state for the next 30 years. So, so it's harder. And at the same time um, in Europe, okay, N26 has done pretty well. I mean, they've done really well, uh, but um, 
And you've got companies like Klarna in the lending space that have done super well. And of course, there are great fintech companies in, in continental, continental Europe, Adyen as well. But, you know, there's this, there's this disconnection. And so UK-based fintech will now need to think um, it's now equally difficult for them to go to Europe versus the US, and they'll have to decide where they go. There's more; there'll be more similarity in the regulation between UK and Europe than UK and the US. But gee, the the market is bigger in the US. If you go there, you can get access to the US um, venture markets, which are far deeper and 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 more aggressive, and and you don't have to deal with the complication of um, of different languages of of different user behaviors. So I, I think probably the impact will be that UK fintech will go more frequently to the US than, than Europe now. It's going to be a fascinating couple of years. I think specifically, it seems like, you know, having friends that use the Revolut card, that use the, you know, the Monzo card, um, specifically Parisian friends, you, you know, London friends, it seems like the biggest piece is that FX thing, right? Just like the ability to spend in different countries without, you know, much FX impact. And it's, I feel like it's going to be a very interesting experience to watch those companies try and find some specific product market fit or not even product market fit, some specific, the, the thing, right? The chimes get paid two day early thing, right? That's been done already. What's, you know, what's Monzo's thing? What's Revolut's thing in the US? I think it's going to be really interesting to figure out. Uh, and, you know, Monzo were awesome in the UK, right? Like they came up with this way to get great, you know, social proof of a coral colored card that people could see. You could pay for your uh, your tube ride every day by tapping the card. So it was very visual. You saw it everywhere, or at least you thought you did. So you trusted it and then you you became aware of it and you, you adopted it. Um, that was definitely their thing. To what extent that's replicable in the US, I don't know. I understand that things are maybe not going as... Um, as rapidly for them over in the US as it as it did in the in the UK, uh, but the Revolut's done really well in a lot of markets. I'm not sure how they are in the US, but you know they've they've done great across many markets in in Europe. If you if you're living in Ireland, perhaps towards the north of Ireland, but not quite in Northern Ireland, you know you having the card where you could spend kind of seamlessly in you know, in euros, one side of the border and sterling, the other side of the border was, was a massive game changer. And they certainly, and same for that, for the folks around Gibraltar, for example. Makes sense. And, and I mean, <laughs> you know, 2021, based on how we're starting so far, maybe we do have different currencies in California, New York, and in the rest of the world or something. So anyways, let's not go down that rampage, but it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So Rails Bank, what was that experience like trying to, because you talked to a lot of banks. I mean, I know MBKC was one of them, obviously ended up at Cross River and, you know, we had some some fun over some beverages, but you talked to, you know, uh, tens, if not, you know, hundreds of banks, it sounded like trying to find the right partner in the US. What was that process like? It was interesting because we banking as a service wasn't yet a thing. Embedded finance wasn't a term. And so, you know, getting people to understand 
what we did and how it was different to what banks themselves could do was was quite a challenge. And then that overlaid with the fact that here's a an Australian that's got kind of a slightly British kind of weird accent going on who doesn't know that much about US banking and has no pipeline, no customers just yet, but actually a really great business on the other side of the Atlantic. To, to get them to kind of buy in was, was tough. And we, you know, learning about the market, learning about which banks were the ones likely to support was really important. What was interesting at the time was that um, Philip Reese, I think this is this is public. Uh, Philip Reese is ac- was actually a personal investor in Rails Bank, um, and on um, uh, also obviously in Cross River as well. So that gave us the in, and it gave us the chance to be you know, spend enough time with Cross River to cross those things for us to learn what was important for them, for them to to learn about, about our business. But frankly, what it came down to, it, like to get the Cross River deal done, I literally jumped on a plane, booked a hotel um, on the wrong, obviously the, the, across the river from, from Manhattan, right. Where I couldn't, I could see the Cross River office, but I couldn't walk there. Cause it was like a motorway um, and basically spent there as long as I needed to, to, to get in front of the right people and and build that trust and and get it done and from there it was actually quite easy, but um, but up until then just communicating this isn't this this was long enough ago this was more than two years ago so you know back then banking as a service people didn't know what what I was talking about right and and I th- and now that's changing but back then there was a lot of education to do for a lot of people. Were you using the term banking as a service? I can't remember. Is that what you were kind of coming through and pitching? Um, towards the end, yes. At the start, no. At the start, no. We, we didn't have a word for what we were doing for, for the longest time. And it was to our disadvantage, I, I have to say. Well, it's a, you know... <laughs> new markets are not easy to figure out. And yeah, the, you know, you walk into a VC office. Now you say the words banking as a service and checkbooks open. It's a very different world. You're right. I mean, in two years, it has shifted dramatically. What was, so coming from your experience, right? You, you have an experience of working with banks more so of an RBC nature, more so of a JP Morgan nature, right? Like they're, you know, they're European, but they're huge. And what was it? Cause I'm guessing when you came to the U S like because of the interchange rates and everything else, you had to talk to sub Durban community banks. And speaking of which your accent and you being, you know, not a down home boy, what was that like getting to know community bankers? You know, I, Actually, the example with NBKC was was perfect. And actually, one of my nicest memories was, you know, I think it was my second or third trip to, to Kansas City and getting in uh, someone's car. It might have been Michael's car uh, from from NBKC and going with a, a group. If it was a piece of shit Saturn, then it was Michael's car. He's gotten a new <laughs> one now, but he used, he's, he drove that car for like 12 years. He's- I've got no idea what even a Saturn is, mate. I think that's, but, uh, you know, we went to like a, a place, we had barbecue and a gas station and uh you all were just like uh telling 
telling jokes, making fun of each other, that kind of thing. And I, and at that moment, I, I kind of realized like this, this is the reality of how you have to do business. And as an Australian, it was perfect because that's also how we do business, right? You want, you want to, in business in Australia, you want to say thanks to, to someone for something. You, you go send them a carton of beer or a bottle of whiskey or, or something. And then you go, you go share it with them. Right. And you, or you have a barbecue with them or, or whatever. So it actually really suited me quite well. You know, I'm not really one for, you know, doing business over email. If it's remotely important, I'll get on a plane because I want to be able to look you in the eye and, and, you know, have the chance to get to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And we had, uh, yes, we did have some good times and that, that is, I, I agree. That is the beauty of this community banking world is it's a whole bunch of humans that are willing to hear you out. Right. At the end of the day, a lot of the larger banks are kind of going to they're less interested in learning on, in many ways. And I think we learned a lot just from having conversations with you, even though we didn't end up partnering together. So makes sense. Let's jump to Cladara. So you left Rails Bank. Rails Bank ended up with uh, Cross River. That's a you know story for the ages for another day. How did you end up with Cladara? Maybe how did you meet Christina? Maybe there's some overlap there. Let's, let's get into that side of things. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'd seen two tech companies scale, right? I'd seen Dupay go from not very much to quite a lot of people with lots of different offices. Rails Bank was doing the the same thing, and you know, actually at at Dupay, Christina and I were working together. So I was running the kind of the front office, right? The customer the origination, marketing, sales, business development. She was running the kind of middle and back office. So she was running customer support, customer success, compliance, which basically meant that I was messing up and she was making me look good by cleaning up after my mess. So not much has changed. <laughs> not much has changed at all, let me tell you. But, um, you know, what, what we learned, right, is that or two things. Number one, as you grow, the way you do things has to be constantly reinvented. And the way you do things is conditioned by software. Now, that that's the first thing. The second thing is every time you hire someone new, they want to bring their own favorite bits of software. So you, if you don't, you cannot improve your processes without knowing your software, but you don't know what software you've got because everyone's doing their own things. They're subscribing to new things with their own credit cards, or they were used, they were, they were taking the photo of my credit card from the, from the Slack channel where I, I took a picture of it so they could subscribe to what they needed. And it was a disaster, right? We, we, we couldn't change our processes. We couldn't grow as a business. The, you know, the HR team literally couldn't do their job because how do you onboard people when you don't know what software you're onboarding them to? How do you offboard them when they leave to make sure they no longer have access to the data that, you know, of your customers or of your business? The finance person who's meant to be the steward of your company's money and be able to budget and forecast and account for it can't do his or her job. In fact, they're just nagging everyone for invoices constantly for the SaaS. And we spoke to a lot of other tech companies and they were going through a, through a similar thing. And that's kind of where the, the idea um, kicked off for, for Cladara. I um, left Dupay and joined, joined Rails Bank. Um, Christina stayed at Dupay a, a little longer and she, some time elapsed and, and in the end she figured out that this was a problem that she, you know, wanted to, to tackle herself head on because no one else seemed to be doing it. And so she, she started Cladara. Cladara actually um, became Rails Bank's first card customer. So there's a, 
some more tied history there. I did not know that. That's that is interesting. Okay. I, th- I think the first card transaction done on Rails Bank by anyone other than Rails Bank was Cladara. I think it was buying a pack of balloons on Amazon because it was like a, a couple of bucks. So it was a, qu- a cheap test. Um, yeah. Spend testing is a weird thing. You're like not quite sure what to buy. <laughs> I think I ordered a, a remote coffee and I was so excited to get it the first time I ever did spend testing. So yeah, no, I know the feeling <laughs> you, you buy shit that you just really don't need, but you got to spend it on something. Yeah, it actually turns out Amazon was really bad to do spend testing because they they do all the author they they um they tell you they've authorized the payment, they authorize the card, and they charge you from a different merchant the actual amount. So it, it was it was not the best one to, to test on, at least in Europe. But um so I spent a couple of years at, at Rails Bank, grew grew that business. Um really, you know, we I helped them launch in the US. I uh, myself and and Nigel uh, helped them launch in in Singapore. Got closed their anchor customer out there, which was Sing Life, which ended up investing in 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 Rails Bank as well. And you know that was that was like the tour of duty done. And you know Colorado had come along, and you know obviously been in touch with Christina in the interim, and decided that uh, you know that's what I might do next. And so that's how I ended up at. Cladara and and it's been a, a pretty wild ride since. Yeah, so let's let's start with with that. So like when when you joined, what was the what was the customer count? Like did did you feel like you had a sense of what the customer like the correct customer at that point, like product market fit kind of vibes, or was it just kind of spray pray? Let's figure out who we should actually be selling this thing to still. So when I joined Cladara, it was Christina and a couple of engineers, right? So um, they, uh, Christina had actually launched, kind of done a soft launch already, um, hadn't built the way to pay for it yet. So there were no plans. People could like sign up for free. Um, they couldn't pay it. They couldn't pay if they wanted to. Um, it's a great and, business model. Oh, it was well. There's interchange still, and, and on corporate cards, it's still okay in, in Europe. But oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, but so there were twenty odd customers that had started from you know, let's say friends and family. So Rails Bank was a Rails Bank was a customer, and a few, a few other you know TechStars companies were were customers. Cladara had just been through through TechStars, and they just closed um, a round of funding, uh, a pre-seed round of uh, about half a million from Anthemus, which is a, a really great early stage fintech VC. Yeah, I'm still upset that I wasn't able to get you all into uh, Fountain City back when I was running Fountain City. It was it was a tough go to try and get you to move across to the US, but I guess you know TechStars. London may have had something slightly better than what we were offering at the small community bank in Kansas City for what you were trying to accomplish. <laughs> not not better barbecue though, let me tell you. Well, definitely not better barbecue. No, there's not better food in general. So we can we can at least shit on English food and talk wonderful things about KC barbecue. But go ahead. So you did you did uh, London Tech Stars and then off to the races. Yeah, so London Tech Stars uh, raised this this round from from Anthemus, and so by the time the business, by the time I joined, so there were some customers. Those customers were referring other customers. There was really no marketing um, being being done yet. 
but you know you could sign up there was a website uh, and they were doing a really great job of um the, the focus at that point was uh, christina's very product-led so you know great you've got the product in people's hands they're liking it because they're telling other people who are in turn signing up and telling other people but sorry to interrupt but was there like an incentive to refer others or truly okay so you were you were moving in the direction of product market fit just based on the fact that this word of mouth was actually developing organically. Yeah. And that was quite a, I won't say the referral piece was deliberate, but the path towards getting the product right was definitely deliberate. So, um, you know, Christina was talking to customers literally every day, um, and, and leading, leading product herself, obviously as a, as a result. And it was kind of that product led strategy, which, which really, really paid dividends early on. Um, then, so when I joined really, we, we tried to set up the same division of responsibilities, I guess would be the, the phrase as, as we had at Dupe. So Christina would, um, run, middle and back. So support, success, compliance, but she would also do product because uh, she was great at that. And I would uh, spend time at the, you know, marketing and, and sales. And so uh, when I joined was the start of last year, start of 2020. And um, the results, I mean, have been pretty good, but and I'd like to say it's because of you know, me joining and doing marketing and sales. We, we grew like 24X last year. So a lot of growth. Hold on, pause, pause there. 24X, just pause on you, but you grew 24X in the midst of a pandemic, which I guess th there's some headwinds with a business like Cladara with the pandemic, right? Is there some, like almost some positivity there? So there, I mean, there are multiple things. So on one hand, there was a period kind of the second half of March, sec first half of April, where no one was taking a decision about anything, right? They were deciding if they're going to be alive in six months or how many people they need to fire. And, you know, the an all-in-one SaaS purchasing and management platform that you didn't use before wasn't going to be very high on the list of priorities in that moment. Um, and, you know, obviously, generally, it's caused a bifurcation of the market. Some companies have done really well and others if they're anything to do with travel for example have not and you know we had some customers in the the travel space like travel tech companies that that did that did suffer but of course you're right you know companies have adopted more cloud software and where the where the best way to kind of buy it and and manage it and and cancel it but also, everyone's not, you know, working around an office anymore. So they can't, you know, call across the room and say, hey, Zach, you know, what's that e-signature tool we use again that I, I used three months ago? They can't do that. So they can just log into Slack, sorry, log into log into Cladara and, and see, you know, what, what tools they use. So maybe I feel like we're kind of, because we know each other so well and because I know Cladara and everything else, we almost are like talking about Cladara without setting the stage about what exactly Cladara does. So maybe let's start there because it, it has been an evolution, right? Like even just what you did as a company at the beginning of 2020 has expanded now into 2021, not just geographically, but in terms of just like product set. So maybe just like a 30 second commercial of like, what, what, why would someone sign up for Cladara? What is it? What is the benefit from a CFO's perspective? That kind of stuff. Sure. So Cladara is just, it, it's simply the best way to discover, buy, manage, and cancel your SaaS in a, in a company. So with Cladara, everyone in the business can see all the cloud software that's available to them on one screen. And 
uh, if there's something that they need that's not there, we provide a really easy uh, procurement to payment so solution. So I want this, this is why, this is how much it costs. You can request it, it gets approved, you get a virtual card to, to pay for it on the website, different virtual card for every, every different subscription you have so you can stay in control. And then we automate and help manage everything that goes around it. So um, you can connect your Gmail or your, your company email so that you no longer have to go hunting for invoices and reconciling them manually. They get spotted, collected and matched and sent through to finance. You can connect your accounting system. So the poor bookkeeper doesn't have to do the same journal entries every month for all your subscriptions. They're done automatically. And we also help with, with compliance. So, you know, if you're ISO 27001 compliant, SOC 2 compliant, generally want to have risk management around where your customer data is going because you care about GDPR or the Californian regulation, um, you can do all that risk management in Cladara. We walk you through everything you need to do and document it, diarize follow-ups to make it really as lightweight as, as possible. So it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a tool that at the end of the day, if I'm a, if I'm a two, three person company, it's almost, you start there because things are just going to start getting wild at five, even wilder at 10, at 20 or 30, you're going to need an OKR tool. So you need to find the best OKR tool and you can probably purchase that through Cladara whilst simultaneously making sure that you don't have 13 Canva subscriptions or like Envision subscriptions kind of a thing. So it's truly like through the whole life cycle of a company. Do you think there's a, a top limit to the size of company that should or would benefit from Cladara at this point? So we've, we've of course got customers of all sizes. I think where we're at our sweet spot at the moment are companies with between 50 and 300 people because, you know, they've got some organizational complexity. They've got a CFO who cares about this stuff, right? So that's it, it's going to be high on their list of priorities. Um, below that, it's interesting. So you thought you, you're, it's interesting to me that you say for a couple of people, it makes sense to, to implement it before, it's, before the chaos uh, reigns. And that's certainly true. But what we see is that companies that sign up to Clodo with lower headcounts, like two or three or five people, they tend to be second time founders. So they've seen it play out before, they get us in place, they set up their processes before it, um, setting it up means some kind of change when you're teaching 50 people how to do something different. All right. Well, you hear that early stage fintech founders. This is uh, this is a lesson learned. This is a war story, and this is something you can you can do right the first time if you're listening right now. There you go. Yeah, I think that I think that's right, and I think particularly in fintech, right? Because it's it's not just about being kind of good stewards of your you know your investors' money or you know, saving some headaches. Actually, you know, you, if you're going to work with a bank, you've got to think about data security. You've got to think about about these kind of things. Um, in Europe, actually, there's a new regulation um, on outsourcing that actually affects regulated intech, uh, fintech. So from December this year, you need to do risk management on software, whether it's your $7 a month Canva subscription or your 10000 and a month HubSpot subscription. You've got to do risk management before you subscribe. And so it's not just good hygiene anymore. It's going to become essential. Wow. That's fascinating. That was always one of the things that was a bit mind-blowing to me in the US banking system was that it that it was just for the most part, just good hygiene. It was, you know, there was a vendor approval system, things along those lines, but it kind of came down to doing the right thing so that if the shit ever did hit the fan that you had a defensibility of it, but it didn't really seem like something that was mission critical kind of a thing. And it's, it seems like the regulations are going more in that direction. 
That's right. I think the OCC has has or will pass similar regs over over in the, the over in the US. So, you know, for um, really for any regulated fintech or any fintech that wants to be involved in the movement of money with a bank, they they will need to think of this. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the the most recent seed that you guys raised. I know it was a, a process, and especially like focused on you coming over to the US. What was that fundraise process like? I know you had some long days, some long nights. Um, just tell tell me about it. Tell me about kind of what direction you're going to go now that you have that money in the bank as well. Right. So maybe I'll start there because that's the shorter answer. So really, we have we have three objectives right? So objective number one is we have customers using the product. We know they're helping inform our, our product roadmap. We have our vision, we have things to build. And obviously that means deploying the capital to hire product and engineers and UX to execute on that, that vision. Um, we're growing. So obviously we have growth targets. And the third, the third thing uh, we want to achieve is to get the infrastructure in place to launch in the US and to get the team in place to to ahead of the ahead of that launch and also ahead of our, our next round of funding. So we're pretty light at the moment. We're we're eight people. We've got a lot, uh, not many people wearing a lot of hats. Uh, we've got more people joining in the the next the next days and weeks. So that's starting to be sorted. But the funding round itself, to, to the point of your other question, I mean, it was a it was a learning journey. I've, I've raised capital before. I you know was involved with the Dupay rounds and Rails Banks rounds with everyone from you know V. CCs to, to companies like Visa. And this was different. So we we planned to start raising in uh, March, April. And when COVID hit, kind of at the time, no one really knew what to make of it. And we thought, well, this is the plan. Let's go and try to raise. And we learned pretty quickly that, well, VC funds were focusing on triaging their portfolio. They were working out, you know, what capital they could call. They didn't know if they could even call capital from their LPs. And if they could, they were definitely going to give it to their existing portfolio, not um, a company they hadn't invested in yet. So we decided to hit pause and we, you know, we went back to focusing on the the business, right? And if you've got two co-founders involved in a funding round and you've only got eight people, that decision enabled us to kind of keep the velocity in product, to keep the velocity in, in growth. And we came back out to market um, around the summertime. And then, you know, we'd kind of learned and we, we did those spin our wheels for a couple of weeks with meetings. We got a lot of meetings, so that wasn't a problem. A lot of first meetings, meeting, Zoom made everything very efficient. Um, but previously, when I'd raised capital at the seed stage, it was about kind of the, you know, the having a barbecue at a gas station, right? It was about building the relationships with people. And ultimately, you know, VCs at that stage often invest in, in team. And so you build the relationship, you build trust. We, you know, we tried that. We tried to keep the meetings informal. We tried to run it like we would a meeting in a cafe or like an informal first meeting. And what we found, we weren't getting the responses that we thought we would, right? We, there were, there were, we were getting some question, common questions back from different investors that we didn't think we should be getting. They didn't make sense. And so we, we sat down and kind of reconsidered. We spent a lot of time, for example, talking to Eamon Kerry, who runs a Techstars London program. And actually, Christina asked him a killer question. He said, look, 
she said to him, look, you've just run the selection process for the next London cohort. Um, you did that 100% remotely for the first time. What was the difference between those that did it, those companies that did it well and those that didn't? And he, he said, look, the ones that nailed it were the ones that were so prepared. They had, they, they, they ran the Zoom calls with a structure. They had slides. We weren't using slides for first meetings. I want to get to know you. But like he said, no, no, they were using slides. And they had a lot of slides. They didn't use them all. But he said the best ones, if I ever asked them a question like what is, and it was some question that could be answered by data, you know, they'd have appendix number 731 where they could say, oh, yeah, let me just quickly take you to that. And they'd go to that show, answer the question, and move on. And so what we learned what we learned from that was that we had to, instead of trying to do it as though we were doing it in person, we had to kind of iterate to doing it on Zoom, which meant doing those things. So we we did a, we had a partner meeting with a fund actually the next week and we did it for the first time. We had a very structured deck. We had a lot of data sliced and diced and the response was completely different. It was, it was night and day. And so we thought, okay, let's double down on that. So we actually went even further. And from the moment we did that, it was completely different, right? We, we'd probably spoken to, I think, I think the number was like 96 or 97 different funds. And, you know, once we did that, it changed. It completely changed from one day to the next. We ended up in the next, I think, 20 odd funds getting like lots and lots of partner meetings, ended up with quite a few term sheets. And, and we were very happy uh, selecting Nauta who, who, who were great, but we wouldn't have got there unless we kind of figured out that raising a seed round in this world is, is different. Geographically, were most of those, were those funds kind of just everywhere? Were they mostly UK funds, mostly US funds? Because you and I talking in different conversations have had some, some interesting discussions about the differences of VCs in different, uh, different geographies in the world and how they think. Sure. So they were mostly, I would say, UK and European funds. Uh, we did talk to to some US investors, uh, and yeah, there, there were there were certainly differences. And I think the the difference really was around around velocity. So with the US funds, you kind of got to a no or a we're really interested really quickly. Whereas in in the UK and Europe, you could just have a lot of calls. You could have a lot of calls with with a VC, and and you know you kind of feel like you're progressing, but actually it's not really clear if you are or not. Mm-hmm. Is that because there is this like the sense of politeness, or what do you attribute that to? I don't think it's politeness. I think it's more about just different. I, I, I want to say culture, but it's almost like the the culture of the venture community. So. You know, I can remember right at the end, there was one West Coast fund that um, was really keen to get in and they'd kind of, they'd seen one of our monthly updates. We told, we, they called me on a, on a, like a Wednesday or something, Wednesday morning um, and Wednesday very early. So it was very late there, I think. And they're like, oh, you know, can we, can we do something? I'm like, look, we've got a term, we've got some term sheets. We're going to sign one on Friday. So you've got until Friday that uh, Friday afternoon to think about what you want. And over the next 24 hours, we had a ton of calls. They did it. They did an all nighter. They had an investment committee at five in the morning one day. Um, they really wanted to get to a yes or a no very, very quickly. Whereas, you know, we had, 
with some funds, um, you know, six, seven, eight calls without getting to a yes or a no. I remember one fund after that, about that many calls just kind of disappeared into the night. Wow. And the other part to be mentioned about all this is you're, you've been in one place trapped in a small house in Spain throughout this whole process, right? So have you, have you had any sense of like regular sleep hours or are you just kind of on everyone else's schedule through this whole thing? Like are you taking calls at like 3 a.m. and 2 p.m. and just all over the place? It's been okay. We've, we've been back and forth to London a little oh, bit. Okay. So, okay. so actually when we were having the kind of the most important Actually, there were still calls, right? So the most important calls with with Nauta, by coincidence, we were we were in London. Um, but no, we've spent most of the time, you know, away away from a city and in a in a mountain, um, uh, kind of enjoying uh, the, the views of nature out the window. At least, um, it's but it's been okay because we're regulated, right? So we operate where we've where we can operate, which is across Europe. And in terms of time zones, there's really only uh, two hours difference between either extreme is it's less than the U S so it hasn't really affected us at all. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, we're coming up on time. So I want to kind of use this last piece to give you a chance to do a couple things. One, one of the questions that I like to ask specifically of friends is what can listeners do to help you? Should they be trying Cladara? Should they be reaching out and trolling you on Twitter? What, what can folks do to help you? Definitely troll us on Twitter. I, I, li- I like that suggestion. Um, look, so we're operating in the UK and Europe. Um, so if you are in UK and Europe, we'd, we'd love to, to hear from you and, and, and share the product. But actually, most importantly, we're hiring now. So we're hiring across all parts of the business, uh, engineers, front end, back end, product, UX, um, uh, marketing. I would really love to meet killer, killer, you know, B2B marketers that are happy, uh, happy getting their hands dirty, but can also scale to, to management positions. Would absolutely love that. Um, other, other than that, you know, we're, we're coming to the, to the US. And so uh, hopefully we're going to be there in the, the next uh, three, six months. And, and so if something like Cladara could be interesting for you, we'd love to, love to speak as well to learn more about, you know, exactly what your challenges are and how we can help. Beautiful. What's the best way to get a hold of you to facilitate those conversations? Where should people reach out? Well, um, on Twitter, Cladara is, well, Cladara, and you can see the spelling <laughs> up there. And, and uh, my Twitter handle is probably the best way to reach me, which is Brad, B-R-A-D, Van, V-A-N-L. So Brad Van L. And you'll, you'll find me. And that's probably even faster than email, I think. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited to have you in the US. I'm excited to have Cladara in the US. I'm hoping in some way, shape or form that we're working together sometime soon and at least having a beer sometime this year. So always good talking to you, man. I appreciate the time. Um, And let's do a let's do a follow up later this year and see see how the 24x growth is going in 2021. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the time. I've enjoyed the chat. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Brad Van Leeuwen. I tossed all the pertinent information in the show notes, so feel free to jump in there and dig in as much as you'd like. One other housekeeping item to note is that For Fintech's Sake has somewhat shifted into a newsletter. Not 
really a newsletter. But if you want to find out every time a new episode is published, go to forfintechsake.com, toss your email in there and subscribe. And we will send you an email every time a new episode is out. It's not going to be a deep dive essay or anything like that at this point. That may come later. I think there's enough fintech newsletters out in the world for now. But if you want a little for fintech sake in your inbox, go to forfintechsake.com, subscribe, and we'll see you at our next episode in your inbox. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and don't boycott Robinhood. Just buy and hold. That's the ultimate spite. They're selling your order flow, so just buy it and hold it. All right. Bye.